that the new promise that God has made, this new covenant that He's made with Jesus Christ and us, is so much better than the old one that we don't have to go far to find truth because truth has come to us. And what's more, we don't have to live in anxiety because God is with us at all times, even amongst the most difficult times. So let's pray together and let's read Hebrews chapter 8. Father God, I pray that the reading of Your Word, the hearing of Your Word would be worship to You. But moreover, I pray that when we hear Your Word today, we would believe it. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things, as Moses warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and that degree, uh, to that degree He is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. Take a break for a minute here. Talking about navigating, the, the letter here is called Hebrews because it's specifically written to Hebrews, Jewish believers, people have come to trust Jesus Christ, but who, who know what it is to be an Israelite, who know what it is to be Jewish and a Hebrew, and who knows the Old Testament system. And now, having lived their life celebrating at the temple as it's been rebuilt, living their life celebrating and following God as best they can according to the Old Covenant, the New Covenant comes along and they need help knowing how to navigate it and what they're supposed to do and how it all worked together. Was, was God wrong in giving them the first covenant? He was not. But as the writer says to us here, God was working on purpose. He had a purpose and a plan, and it was all leading to something. So that when you hear about the old covenant and when you hear about the old temple, as it says in verse 5, it was just a pattern See, the writer here says everything that Moses saw, everything that Moses was doing, Moses was doing according to a pattern of something higher. When you go back and read the Old Testament about the tabernacle being built and then about the temple being built and about all the sacrifices and the order and the way that they were supposed to be worshiping God, you're supposed to understand that all of it was sort of like one of those children's activities where you have the backlight and a picture and the tracing paper over it, and you're just sort of tracing the drawing and doing exactly what you saw. Perhaps I was talking down to you when I said this was for children, but uh, perhaps this is still you. That's all right. <laughs> but if you've got a tracing table, the backlight, and a nice drawing, and you're just putting your paper over it and drawing what you've seen, 
The writer of Hebrews says is everything that Moses was doing and bringing the law down and describing how the priests were going to serve God in the temple and describing the sacrifices, all of this was just according to a greater pattern that was already established. And so he quotes it and says, even at the beginning, God said, be careful to make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. What he's suggesting is all of it was good and right, but temporary and secondary to something greater. What exactly is the pattern that it was accorded to? First of all, this, there is a better sanctuary and temple in which Jesus is serving as priest. Verse 2, the minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle was not set up by the Lord and not by man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So, it was necessary for Christ likewise to offer them in verse 4. Now, if He were on earth, He wouldn't be a priest, since there are those who are offering gifts prescribed by a law. Trouble is, if Christ was still on earth, if He hadn't ascended into heaven, into this greater heavenly tabernacle, this perfect temple of God where God's presence dwells eternally, well, if He hadn't gone into the temple, then He wouldn't be serving as a priest because you have to go into the temple to serve as a priest. Rather, everything that they were doing, all these priests going into the Holy of Holies, the candles, the bread, all of this was simply a symbolic of what God was going to do next to prepare them to understand. It all served as a copy to get them right and to get them ready for seeing the truth and what really was. So, it's sort of like when I was a child, there was a series of books called Illustrated Classics. And I know this, okay, sorry, this is a little nerdy, and I'm just, go with me for a moment. But there were the illustrated classics. You guys remember these series? They're still republishing them probably for kids. And they're condensed books is what they are. You take all these classic books like a Robinson Crusoe, and you put a lot more pictures in it. Uh, and each picture has to have like the little pull line, a tweet-sized sentence that says, by the way, here's what's happening, uh, for a child in the language much abbreviated and much shortened so that the kid can get it. Children's classics. You guys remember these things? I read a lot of them, all right? I don't care who knows it, either. <laughs> it's like that. We're prepared with the Old Testament system so that when it comes time to receive the greater thing, a greater priest and a greater tabernacle, with a greater sacrifice to offer, what's he say in verse 6? A superior minister, superior ministry to the degree that the mediator of a better covenant who established, that was established on better promises... It's like reading the children's illustrated classic and then seeing the reality and reading the original. I feel at this point it'd be good to step one step deeper into my generation's version of what was nerdy. You see, I didn't have cable growing up. We just had the PBS, and so I watched a TV series called Wishbone. I'm so happy to hear just a couple of... <laughs> Y'all... It was important to me growing up. It was a dog. The dog's name was Wishbone. And uh, periodically I've thought, I wonder if I could find these on YouTube and show them to my children. I wonder if they hold up. It was a dog, and the dog would reenact all these classic works of literature in a 30-minute uh, TV show, a live-action one. And so he would play all the parts and do all of this. It's sort of like watching Wishbone. You get the idea of it. You start to understand what's going on, but you won't really understand unless you actually go and read the original. Likewise, Everything that was happening in the Old Testament was happening on purpose and from God, but the purpose of it was to prepare people to understand and see what He was going to do next with Jesus Christ coming. Likewise, if you need more, 
Not for my generation, though. My kids. I mean, my kids are reading a children's Bible, right? There's a lot of really good children's Bibles out there. And children's Bibles are excellent tools because it prepares them for being ready when they go to open honest translation of Scripture. It it's, prepares them for already having the ideas in their mind and knowing the stories a little bit so that they can go read it. So I've got some kids who are reading the children's Bible. Even earlier on, before they were reading, they were looking at the Bible app, which just told you the stories. And then after the children's Bible, there's the action Bible, and then eventually the NIRV, and then we get them to the CSB, where some of them are today, but they're, they're progressing and learning this. You see, God, in bringing about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant with Moses, He, wasn't, he didn't fail with that. The writer of Hebrews here is going to talk about the failures of the Old Covenant, about the deficiencies of the Old Covenant. But the failures and deficiencies of it were not God's failures and deficiencies. God's plan from the very beginning has been perfect all along the way and was always on purpose and was always building up to something. It's true about all of time and space and creation. It's also true about your life and the way God has been preparing you for the things that you need to face now. You, dear friend, can trust in Christ, that the covenant He's offered you is better than the old one, and it will prepare you since He is constantly in the temple offering sacrifices, not once a year. This will prepare you for all that you need. Christ is with us, and Christ is seated on the throne in heaven at the same time, and this is our great joy. Now next, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says this, If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. So what he says is, the first covenant, it was faulty. Faulty. What a thing to call the law, the Word of God given through Moses. It was faulty. The first covenant had been faultless. There would have been no occasion for a second one. But I told you, the fault is not with God. Where does the fault in the first covenant lie? By finding fault with His people, God says. The problem with the first covenant is it was made with a people who couldn't keep it. If the first covenant had been faultless, then there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with His people, He says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. I will write my laws on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen, each brother and sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the greatest to the least of them, I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. The fault of the first covenant wasn't with God, it was with the people. 
The first covenant, God said, all right, I've brought you out of slavery entirely by my power. You were slaves, and I made you into a nation, and I've given you a land. And if it wasn't clear to you that I was the one who did all this, not you, the way you're going to possess the land and take it over is this. All you're going to do is march around that great big city over there with its great big walls and blow some trumpets and yell. And then you're going to know that I'm the one who gave this to you and has done all this for you. And here's the promise. That's all that a covenant is anyway. Covenant, a more legal term for a promise. An oath, an obligation. Here it is. God said, I'll do my part and you do your part. I will be your God and you will keep my laws. It sounds simple, doesn't it? What a sweet deal for the Israelites. This God who is powerful enough to bring them out of Egypt with all kinds of signs and wonders, all of these signs and wonders, each one of them demonstrating how He is better than every God the Egyptians could dream up. Oh, they had a Nile God. Well, the Nile turns to blood. They've got a livestock God. Well, the livestock now has source. Every wonder He's showing, He is a God superior to any God they could make up. He draws them out of Egypt, leads them by a pillar of fire, by a pillar of smoke, feeds them daily with food just falling out of the air, and then brings them in to possess the land. And he says, I've got a deal for you. I'll be your God if you will be my people and keep my laws. These laws summarized in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments serve as a representative of all the laws. They serve as a a summary and a high point of all the laws. And you generally are familiar with the Ten Commandments, and you're thinking these shouldn't be too hard to keep you know, it's not, I haven't murdered anybody up until now, and I'm very proud of that, you know, and it's like, that one was easy, honoring your father and mother, perhaps slightly more challenging, depending on the situation you're in, but there it is, you know, maybe we can keep these, but they couldn't. It was as if, let's say, let's say you own a house, and you have a room that you want to rent to somebody, right? You say, you know what, you come live at my house. You need a place to live? I'll take you in. You come live at my house. We'll set the rent really reasonable. Let's say you've got a nice, luscious place for them, and it's a lockout, and it's really a good deal. And you say, you know what, 500 bucks a month. That's it. Is that a good deal for you? And the other person says, that's great. I'm in. I'll do it. This is a good deal, right? Well, it is unless the other person has absolutely no ability to produce 500 bucks a month for you and pay up and keep their side. I mean, the quality of the deal is kind of based on the two parties involved in it. This is a bad deal if that person will never be able to follow through on their side of it. Or you might remember the rich young ruler from Scripture. Jesus, when He's walking the earth, encounters a man who has kept as best, to the best of His knowledge the Ten Commandments. He's asking Jesus, what do I need to do to be righteous? What do I need to do to get in? I want to do it. This rich young ruler says, and Jesus says to him, you know, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, I've been doing it since I was a child. I've been doing it. And Jesus says to him, just one more thing, sell your wealth, give away what you have, and come and follow me. And this rich young ruler leaves sad This deal won't work for him because even though he's kept the Ten Commandments, he has loved his wealth. He's loved what God would give him if he would keep the commandments, and his heart was never turned towards God himself. He never wanted this relationship with God. He wanted the stuff. So even in trying to keep the Ten Commandments, he broke them because he did not love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
You'd understand from this passage that all of the ritual that existed in the law in the Old Testament was to steer the people's attention towards God, but the effect of ritual, as it is for all of us, is that it steered their attention many times towards the ritual itself. You get excited about doing the ritual rather than about loving the Lord who has given His life for us and entering into a relationship with Him. We Baptists are notoriously unritualed. Uh, a part of the history of Baptists was throwing out anything that looked rote or that looked repetitive or that looked over and over again. I mean, the early Baptists in the 15th century and then in the 16th century, one of the things that they wanted to throw out, I say one of the things, they wanted to throw out everything, is that uh, was kind of the Baptist way. Priests were wearing these ornate gowns, and they said, not anymore on that stained glass, which we might now say, okay, slow down, like, it looks really good, maybe a little stained glass, right? Uh, maybe just a little bit. But they had, they had created all of these practices and symbols and rituals and created them all anew, completely apart from the Old Testament. And their contention was, these early Baptists, all of these things are steering people's attention towards the incense. They're steering people's attention towards the priest's prayer. They're steering people's attention towards the beauty of the architecture. They're steering everyone's attention towards the ceremony of the Eucharist or the repetition of certain prayers in Latin, but they're not steering people's attention towards Christ Himself. You're not surprised by this. It's simply the way we are. It's the way they were in the Old Testament. It's the way they were in the New Testament. It's the way they were in the 16th century. It's the way we are today. And so why we Baptists are so sparse about these things. It's become popular to practice uh, liturgical calendars and to do more liturgical things in the Baptist church. To, you know, you hear more Baptists talking about keeping Lent these days, giving up something for Lent, uh, celebrating Ash Wednesday, and filling out the Holy Week calendar with more events and things. And I understand the impulse. It's to want to use any resource that we can to worship the Lord better. But we must always be careful because we have this propensity to give up the relationship with Christ for the love of the ritual. And it must not be, my friends, not with this priest and with these promises and with this covenant by which we were let in. See, what he's talking about here in verse 10, 11, and 12, this new heart, he says to them is, is in this current time, in the Old Testament, this covenant that was given, somebody had to teach you how to keep all the laws. Somebody had to teach you all of these things so that you could obey it. But in this new covenant, he says, I'll put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen. Each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the greatest to the least of them, I will forgive their wrongdoings and I will never again remember their sins. It's a powerful passage, but you might think as a person who is sitting there right now listening to somebody teach, how does that relate to what's going on right now? Well, it's not to say that we don't teach each other Scripture, but it's to say we don't have to teach each other to know the Lord, because each person who's put their trust in Christ knows the Lord directly. That's what it's about. When you become a Christian, yeah, we're going to pray for each other and encourage each other and read Scripture to each other, 
But you don't have to have some other person who's a high authority over you to pray for you at all times and to tell you what Scripture means because you have the Holy Spirit. You, you have your own relationship with God. Perhaps the best way to say it is this. We can use an illustration from, I don't know, the masters, how about? Let's go thematically for this past week, right? Here we go. Uh, some people are dedicatedly novices at golf, right? No need to raise your hand. Uh, some of you are decidedly mediocre at golf, and I'm with you on this one. I'm not a big fan, but say you are interested in golf, and you like playing golf, and you want to go play golf, and you enjoy playing golf, and you're all right at it, and you're working on your game, you know, and you feel like you're improving because you are. You get better the more you practice something. But let's say you go out to play one day with a phenom. Let's say you go out to play one day with somebody who's just crazy good. Let's say it's somebody much younger than you, too. You ever seen a child, <laughs> a young Tiger Woods? You, you go and watch the Masters and see the ages of the guys who are in the top ten these days. Make us all feel old, including me. So now, I'm always rooting for Tiger now. Any old man who's playing a sport, the oldest guy on the course, that's the one I'm cheering for at this phase in my life. Is, you can do it, buddy, because I can do it too. I know I can't. But there's such a difference between the novice and the one who is just preternaturally gifted and phenomenal at it. You know what I mean? And it happens across all sports. So there's a two children who want to learn how to play the piano, and one child kind of goes around pecking and figuring things out and following the drills, and some child, for one reason or another, is crazy good at it and just takes to it like a fish in water and loves it, and you can find them at night playing the piano or hiding under their bed with a book to learn these things. You know the difference between somebody who is simply a novice and somebody who is phenomenal what this passage is saying that in Christ, no one is more phenomenal at a relationship with Christ than anyone else. We are all brought precisely as near to Him. You don't need the gifted person to draw you closer to Christ. By all means, listen to people who have been Christians longer than you and follow their example. But Christ comes near to you. And if we have put our trust in Christ and He has come near to us and transformed us so that we would know Him on the inside, rather than trying to do external rituals in order to try and change our insides, if He would just change our heart and give us a new spirit, His spirit, well, then there's nobody who is more professional at having a relationship with God than you because you have the Holy Spirit in your life. Pastors for us aren't the professional ones. And differently skilled, perhaps, differently gifted and differently called, but not more professional in knowing God, not more professional in loving God, not more professional in obeying Christ than any other person who also has the Holy Spirit of God. It is by His power that we have been brought together so that there's no need for anybody else to say to anybody else, hey, you ought to come know the Lord like I do except that it is a Christian telling a person who's not a Christian this. Because as soon as you become a Christian, you get as close to Christ as anybody else has ever been. He draws you in Himself and makes you His. Chapter 9, let's read a little more. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, was a lampstand 
uh, the table and the uh, presentation loaves. There's lamps, there's a table, there's bread. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Most Holy Place. It had a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which a gold jar contained the manna, Aaron's staff uh, that budded, the tablets of the covenant, and the cherubim of glory were above it, the Ark overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about all these things in detail right now, is what Scripture says. But with these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry, but the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does it only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. Now, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place has not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle is still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical uh, regulations, and they only deal with food and drink and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. It says, everything about the temple was to lead your attention towards God. Did you see that there was a lampstand there? Well, then Jesus arrives and says, I am the light. Did you see that there was bread there? Jesus arrives and says, I am the bread of life. It was all meant to point towards Christ. And even as in the Holy of Holies, the little center temple room where the presence of God had come down into, the only thing anyone could do is the high priest, the head honcho, only once a year could go into there. And he had to be in there after a long ceremony, you can read about in Leviticus 13, a long ceremony of purification and rituals and with blood. And they would even tie a rope to his ankle on account of the fact that if he went in there and died in the presence of God, they could just pull him back out uh, without anybody else having to go in there because this was the presence of God. And what he's saying here, verse 8, is the Holy Spirit is making it clear that Clearly, you understand if that's the ritual required to enter in the presence of God, then the Holy Spirit is making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. See, the way into the most holy place is this. When Christ died on the cross, the curtain holding the Holy of Holies back from everybody else tore in half, top to bottom, because the presence of God is now with us at all times. As Christ is always in the Holy of Holies, always there for us on our behalf, so likewise God is with us at all times. So much of the Old Testament was foreshadowing what Christ was going to do. So, what do we do with the Old Testament? For you and I, dear Christians, what is the Old Testament to us? What are we supposed to keep doing with this? If, if it's obsolete now, if the old covenant has been made obsolete and we don't follow or obey the old covenant, what, why read it? Why is it hanging on here uh, in Scripture if we have this new covenant? For a couple of reasons. First of all, the Old Testament is good. It's good because it was a part of God's plan. If you want to know God at all and His plan, then you'll have to go back and read the history of it and to know how God has been faithful and gracious the whole time. The Old Testament is this powerful revelation for us of the very character of God. The covenants changed, but He didn't change at all. He never has. So if you want to know about who He is and how patient He is and how kind He is, then you need to go read the Old Testament. What do we do with the Old Testament? Well, it was deficient. 
not because it's not the perfect Word of God, but it was deficient because it made obligations upon the people that they couldn't keep, the Israelites or us. But it does signify the new. That is to say, you're not going to understand the New Testament fully and completely unless you also go back and read the Old Testament. You can, by all means, if you're a new Christian, start in the New Testament. But you're not going to understand it fully and completely unless you go back and read the Old as well. Finally, what do we do with the Old Testament? We need to understand that the Old Covenant is obsolete. We are not under it any longer, nor should we put ourselves under it. There have been plenty of people who have gone back with fascination and looked at the Old Covenant and tried to resume some of its practices or acted them out, even saying, we know it's by grace, but let's take a look at this, and gotten excited and fascinated about the old and the obsolete rather than loving the Lord fully and completely. You were to understand that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant anyway, is not something that you're under. You are under a new covenant, and the new covenant is this. All those who go to Christ will be received by Him fully and completely. You know, talked about the illustration of a house. You got a house and you're willing to let somebody come into your house, but for a fee, and you think it's reasonable, but they can't pay it? This is very similar to what Christ has offered to us. He has invited us into His house, into His very family. There's no rent to pay, because there's nothing we can offer. It has all been paid on our behalf, but He is today even offering to bring you into His house, into His family, into His very presence all the days of your life, and on into eternity. Finally today, how do we live? What should we do because of this? First of all, as we've said, don't set aside the Old Testament. Just read it in light of the New Testament. Don't set aside the Old Testament. Soon we're going to be preaching through sections of the Old Testament. Don't set aside the Old Testament. Just read it properly in light of the New Testament. Second, don't practice the Old Testament. There have been plenty, as I said, who have gotten excited about phylacteries and shofar horns and things like this, and I don't think this is particularly healthy or productive. If I thought it was healthy and productive, we would do it too. But we do what we do on purpose, and the purpose is that what you need to know Christ is the Holy Spirit working on you now and the Word of God heard by you. This is what can change your life and nothing else, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And so I offer you nothing else today but the Word and the Spirit so that you can believe and know that you have everything you need to be made right with God because He's done it. Don't set aside the Old Testament, but don't practice the Old Testament either. Third, what do we need to do today? Well, in an age of anxiety, as all ages can be, In an age of anxiety, trust Christ. Simply trust Christ. Suffering is a powerful, uh, powerful force that is in all of our lives at some point, some more than others, and it's never quite explained. But it's also equally powerful to see, some people talk about how suffering leads them away from trusting God. There's some people who will say, oh, all the suffering children, I couldn't possibly believe in this God. But the greater, you hear about this sort of thing, but the greater phenomena by far is the amount of people who endure suffering and it makes them closer to God. Suffering is this powerful dividing line that will, some people will harden their hearts and others will open them and find an even greater love and appreciation and knowledge and presence of Christ in their life through great suffering. Let us not pray that God would put it into our lives. Let us pray that God would keep it very far away from our lives. 
But when it does arrive, and if it does, don't waste your suffering by falling away from Him, but draw all the nearer to Christ in all seasons. So how do we live? Let us practice the New Testament. We're not practicing the Old Testament, we're practicing the New Testament. Today, we take the Lord's Supper. It's a great time to talk about the Old Testament and all the rituals, because here's our New Testament ritual that we are taking today. Today, we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, We have it... uh, prepackaged for you, and you should already have one, and Trevor even announced it for you. Today, we take the Lord's Supper, but this is different. The Lord's Supper is not a ritual like the Old Testament rituals. Rather, the Lord's Supper… See, the Old Testament rituals, they were to help you to believe in something that was going to happen in the future. But you see, this, taking the Lord's Supper, this is a memorial. It's our declaration of faith in something that's already happened. And this makes all the difference in the world, because if it's already happened, then there's nothing to be added to it. So we don't believe that in taking it today, it gives us somehow more grace or makes us closer to God, because all of the grace has been given and all of the nearness has been given. This is a memorial, and it's a reminder of what God has already done even before we were born for us. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, we take it in a somber way in a serious way, but we take it with great joy because it's a declaration that our sins are forgiven. Yes, we remember the great cost that was paid for our sins, but we remember all the more that Christ did it willingly for us. He doesn't want to leave us feeling guilty today, but wants to draw us into His presence and give us His peace and His joy. It's critically different. Finally, perhaps, For us, in taking the Lord's Supper, the symbol is less important than the truth. So what's more important than the taking today is the self-examination that goes along with it. Dear friends, examine your heart now. Are Are you really hungry for the presence of God in your life? Are you hungry to know the Lord today? Friends, is there sin in your life that you need to turn away from? Take a moment with God now and turn away from these sins and prepare your heart for the Lord.